Robert Cohen here. You and I are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, yeah, the dignity of man. Well, the Puritans used to insist that wealthy people were more dignified, and by the fact of having more money, the elect and social Darwinism would uh, paint a picture that wealthy people are just more advanced on the evolutionary scale. A lot of people today somehow believe that people in the top 1% are just smarter. Now, you and I know there are a lot of people who have gobs of money who are not particularly bright or cultured and certainly not better people. So how did the 1% get that way? Many reasons, of course. There's the factor of being in the right place at the right time and aware enough to take advantage of that. No doubt there is individual initiative, being wisely entrepreneurial. But though the super rich often say how much they abhor government, according to our guest today, government has a lot to do with it. In an essay called How Tax Policy Created the 1%, our guest Julia Ott, professor of history of capitalism at the uh, News School and author of When Wall Street Met Main Street, The Quest for an Investor's Democracy, uh, Ott also co-edits Columbia Studies in the History of U.S. Capitalism. Uh, On this part of uh, today's Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll look at how this happened, how the 1% became the 1%. What role specifically did our government have in creating and protecting the 1%? And in what ways does racism play a role. Our guest argues, quote, tax breaks for capital gains form are a form of class privilege and that the tax code's preferential treatment of income from capital gains may appear colorblind, but it's not, not in its consequences and not in its historical origin, end of quote. She says it was the preferential treatment for capital gains which has given rise to the white 1%. We'll look into this. Well, again, thank you, Julia Ott, for being with us and keeping democracy alive. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Well, sure. As you write, under President Trump, one of these days I'll get used to that phrase. Oh, gosh, yeah. The stage is set for massive tax cuts to reward those brilliant members of the 1%. Yet you also point out that polls suggest that Americans won't stomach a tax plan that will enrich the the rich at the expense of the rest of us. In 2016, a Gallup poll found that 61% of Americans agreed that upper income people said uh, uh, that that upper income people paid too little in taxes. 
and a majority, 52%, concurred that our government should redistribute wealth by heavy taxes on the rich. My guess is that most Americans are not fully aware of the massive effects of what you call preferential treatment for income from capital gains. Let's start with definitions. Always a good place to start. What do we mean when we talk about capital gains and their preferential taxation? So a capital gain is a gain um, that an individual, a taxpayer, reports because they have received profit on an investment. So this could be, um, you know, something like selling uh, some stocks or selling some bonds um, for a higher price than what you paid for them, and the gain is called a capital gain. Um, uh, I I would think uh, many Americans might be familiar with a capital gain um, when they sell their home. So if you sell, uh, uh, sell your home for a higher price than you paid for your home, that is considered by the tax code to be a capital gain. Um, And there are uh, a level at which those gains are exempted from um, income um, uh, taxes. At at this point in time, on on the home uh, side of things, um, it's like, I think, um, $250,000 if you're a single filer and $500,000 if you're a married couple. Um, There are other, of course, because there are other much more exotic forms of investment. Um, There are lots of other kinds of profits, um, investment profits that were treated as capital gains income by the tax code. Um, But those are two of the more kind of familiar um, and I think, you know, uh, accessible um, and typical kinds of uh, capital gains. So, the issue here, when I talk about a capital gains preference, yes, um, is yes. that on our income tax codes, we are, I'm sorry, income tax forms, um, we report income separately if we earn it from wages and salaries, and that's called ordinary income or mm. earned income. Right. Um, and then we report separately our capital gains income. And those two different forms of income are subjected to different rates. And the rate for the capital gains income, the percentage that you pay to the federal government in the form of taxes, is less than the rate that you pay on uh, your income um, that you've earned from your wages and salaries. Right. And what, what's, the, what's the belief, what's the basis behind why the capital gains tax preference exists in the first place? Well, that's kind of what the article is all about, because the, there are some kind of consistent rationales for this um, across the century or so in which uh, this preference has existed. Um, but there are some consistent, yeah, there's some consistent threads of argument, and then there are some, you know, variations over time. Um, it's, but, but one thing that's been consistent, this preference came in uh, in the Revenue Act of 1921 after World War One, and after World War One. Um, the consensus belief uh, was that a mass investment society, a society in which all Americans owned assets, financial assets, this is actually after the Liberty Loan campaigns of World War One, and this had been the message that had been propagandized all throughout the war, that owning investments made you a better citizen and it made, you, uh, it made for a stronger nation. Um, you have to remember that during World War One, the American populace was not particularly in support at, at the outset of the war. So for the Wilson administration to sell the public on this war and to kind of 
get their buy-in, literally and figuratively, they had to come up with sort of different arguments um, for why buying, um, you know, war bonds were a good idea. Um, and this also intersected with a lot of anxiety around um, radicalism by, you know, right. unpropertied immigrant masses, you know, uh-huh. Russian Revolution going on, etc. So this idea that the nation is stronger when citizens invest reaches all the way back to World War I. Um, and that is kind of, I think, the fundamental uh, core um, around why folks find it compelling to treat investment income in a preferential way relative to earned income. That this is a uh, patriotic, mm. uh, you know, kind of morally admirable, um, you know, again, society building, um, uh, society strengthening economic activity, and it should receive some preferential treatment, some encouragement, you know, in the form of of this tax cut. If it's if it's in place, people will work harder. They'll work harder to save. Um, they'll invest wisely. They may take risks that they otherwise won't take um, in regards to in regards to how they invest. And you know, this will create new jobs and new businesses, and again, give society the stability of of because it's a nation of owners. Um, so that that belief, I think, has run through the whole century of the capital gains preference. Um, it hasn't necessarily been borne out in reality that promise. Um, and then there's been other, you know, there's been other kinds of arguments um, and imperatives um, and justifications, you know, that have kind of um, come into the picture over time as well. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking about uh, capital gains tax preference, why uh, people who get so much of their income from capital gains pay a lower percentage of taxes and what that has to do with the existence of the 1%. Our guest today is Julia Ott, professor of history of capitalism at the New School. And as, as regular listeners to Keeping Democracy Alive know, your host is Constantly amazed at con- that the continued influence of the First World War and where we oh, find yeah. it's amazing on where we really find is. ourselves today, uh, and it just uh, it goes on and on and on, and it does strike me that making a nation of investors, as you say, putting investors in the driver's seat, uh, it, it's trickle down, isn't it? I mean, isn't isn't that basically the theory there that that if you invest money and I don't know, the people get have more wealth, the, the top percent, then somehow it'll trickle down and that's the way to create new jobs? Well, it is in a lot of ways in terms of sort of basic sense of how the economy works, how the world works, um, and in the, in the uh, you know, framing of, of Wininsky, the famous uh, supply cider. But there's a couple things to keep in mind uh, when you look at this historically, is that even if you have the sense that investors and investment should be privileged and prioritized in economic policy for all of the reasons that I sort of just mentioned. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to lead to, um, you know, deregulation and uh, tax cuts for the wealthy, per se, tax cuts for business. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to lead to the kinds of policies that promote um, inequality. Um, so in other words, 
you could have a vision of a mass investment society, um, and this has happened at other times in American history, um, where that was understood to be a positive social good, um, and you know, uh, policymakers who who wish to see that happen or wish to support it um, believed that well, if you're going to have that, you obviously need to have strong wages so that people can save money. So we should be in support of you know labor unions um, who can who can help with that. Um, we need to have. Good Good, strong regulations of our financial system because if we expect sort of every man to be able to participate in these kinds of investment practices, we you know we can't assume that they have sort of the same knowledge and the same information, um, you know, or the same savvy or sophistication about this stuff. Um, and you know, you can see this actually in things like and uh, things like um, the way in which the vast majority of Americans participate in the stock market through taxed. Uh, protected accounts, right? So, you know, your 401k plans and, and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why the capital gains, one of the reasons why the capital gains preference doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, if we didn't have those kind of tax-privileged accounts that sort of are kind of for your average middle-class person, um, then, um, you know, the capital gains tax, which is outside of that, um, wouldn't be such a privilege for the very wealthy. Uh, the problem with the capital gains tax right now is that, you know, the only folks who receive investment income but outside of those tra- uh, tax privilege accounts, you know, tend to be, at this point, um, the, the very top of the income distribution, um, and they receive that preference. Um, so it's the way in which, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's the way in which this is all structured, the devil or in the details. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that this, this idea is ever, this idea of a mass investment society is ever like a completely, you know, populist, um, um, you know, applicable to everyone kind of a policy. But it's a way of thinking now that the policies that have been put into place um, have increasingly over the last couple of decades benefited um, fewer and fewer people, right? Um, So the devil, again, is sort of in the details. Um, And just because there's a sense of sort of trickle-down in some ways, you know, you can trickle down from investors with the body of investors being being, um, a broad strata of the society, or you can trickle down from investors who are a very narrow, right, very elite uh, sector of society. So it sort of depends on who the investors are that are benefiting from these policies. Um, if it's a small number, then it's a very elitist program. Um, you know, if society, it's a broad number, um, then it's going to be less so. And what we see now is that it's a very, very small sector um, of very wealthy people who really get all the benefits from this policy. Uh, interesting. I can imagine, you know, I mean, there's income that people get from their jobs, from working, you know, many hours a week. Uh, and then there's uh, the the income that people get, passive income, you know. And I can imagine a lot of people feel like, hey, wait a minute, I'm paying a certain percentage of, of my hard-earned income and, and passive income. You know, you make an investment, you don't do any actual right. heavy lifting, that it might bother a lot of people. Uh, it, it, and as you write, that the tax break for capital gains enables the oversized financial sector to wield enormous influence on the U.S. economy. And of course, the economy is people, people working, right. over 300 million of us. So uh, w- what do you mean by that? And what's the, what's the problem w- with that that you're addressing in that statement? Right. So 
One of the things, uh, one of the pernicious effects of the preference for capital gains income is that it encourages corporate corporations, you know, um, uh, to in, to pay their executives um, in stock-based compensation, you know, stock and stock options and things of this nature, um, because that, when they're when they receive that. Um, that that uh, income in the form of capital gains income rather than salary income, it's tax less, right? So any executive is going to prefer that form of compensation or, or as much of that, get, uh, receiving their compensation as much in, as possible. Yes. The justification for that is, you know, that's variable. The price of the stock, the value of the stock options will vary based upon the performance of um, of the corporation, Right. <clears throat> Theoretically, this maybe sounds reasonable, but what has happened in effect um, over the last couple of decades is that it encourages the leaders of corporations, the executives who receive this stock-based um, compensation, to make the kinds of decisions, short-term decisions, that will kind of move uh, their stock prices uh-huh. so that they can, you know, maximize their 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 earnings every year, but without real long-term considerations for, you know, what's good for the long-term health and well-being. Of the corporation, its workers, its customers, uh, you know, innovative products, these kinds of things. Um, now, the evidence that we have of this is the fact that right now, um, among publicly traded corporations, by and large, the quote-unquote investments that they're making um, are buying back shares of their own company, um, right? Um, which has the effect of raising stock price, right? Because you've got all this you know, kind of uh, sustained demand demand from the corporation itself, buying back its own shares. But it's not, you know, you're plowing these like corporate profits into, you know, nothing that's making, you know, maybe it's Mm. employing some more people in finance. But other than that, you know, it's not doing anything um, to increase the business or develop the business of that particular corporation. So that's a real problem if we think about like the long-term health, um, you know, at least the end, these are big publicly traded corporations, you know, are they making the kinds of investments? that they need to make to keep, you know, themselves competitive, um, to to hire and sustain their workforces, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that that is not a, a not a hopeful picture right yeah. there. Yeah, it, it seems sort of, uh, you know, very, very surfacy, really. It looks nice, but what is it really doing? And you write about, you know, in the depressed 1930s, uh, New York Stock Exchange President Richard Whitney argued that economic recovery, quote, must come in the future, as in the past, through the initiative of private enterprise, the intelligence of private management, <clears throat> and the courage of private capital, end of quote. It seems a lot of Americans share that somewhat mythic belief. Now, it's not entirely untrue, but as an expert in the field, how accurate was his belief? Did preferential tax treatment for capital gains coming back then, stimulate the economy? How effectively did it help then to spur needed job creation? Oh, I don't think it did anything to spur, <laughs> um, to spur job creation and recovery um, in the Great Depression. What it did, um, and I like that you chose that quote, um, is that Whitney... Um, is very clever in that phrase. What he's signaling there is that freedom from regulation in the financial sector, um, relief from taxation, uh, because Roosevelt and the people around him actually wanted to raise capital gains taxes um, in order to kind of, you know, meet 
deficits and 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 provide sources of revenue for for New Deal programs and things like that. Um, so he he uh, associated relief, what he kind of saw as relief for the financial sector from this kind of thing, with as you as you read, freedom of management, which is sort of a quote. Um, it's kind of a signal for um, for managerial prerogative um, as against um, organized labor, right? So he's kind of reaching out um, discursively or rhetorically to say, you know, hey, um, we over here who have, you know, many concerns about the New Deal, regulation, taxation, and you um, over there, uh, you know, different kind of... Um, different kinds of capitalists, industrial capitalists, kind of kinds of people who employ a lot of workers who are trying to organize, and it seems like the New Deal is going to be behind them. Um, you know, we actually have these shared concerns. Um, and so what Whitney's doing, um, the, the other group that he sort of signal, be, signals to in this period and makes some alliances to are actually Southern segregationists who have a lot of concerns about the growing power of the federal government, right? Um, and and the, these groups sort of come together um, it, Around the capital gains issue, capital gains preference issue, um, in the in the really even early 30s, is pretty quickly after Roosevelt, early mid 30s, um, and and begin to find each other politically to resist um, the Roosevelt administration and New Deal policies. Um, so that's kind of historically the important thing that's happening with that quote with Whitney is that this block is forming against the New Deal. Um, they have some successes. They do manage to keep Roosevelt from raising the capital gains tax rate. Um, in fact, the capital gains tax rate falls, which is kind of amazing if you think about it, like in the middle of the Great Depression, that they get that done. Does it help recovery? I don't see any evidence that it does. I mean, what gets us out of the Second World War is, I think, is generally recognized is that you know tremendous amount of uh, state spending on the yes. military, which is you know funded through through debt and increased taxation, um, not capital gains taxation, but increased taxation on income, um, our earned income that I was talking about before the wages and sure. salaries, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, you know it is true that the capital gains tax, as I said before, falls. Um, in the late 30s and even during World War II, um, but it hits so few people and the amount of money at that time and the amount of money and amount of funding that is coming from, you know, the government taxing ordinary citizens on their ordinary income and the amount of money that comes from the government borrowing from its citizens very broadly um, is in such an order of of many orders of magnitude greater. So it's kind of hard to say, um, uh, you know, I think when you kind of... uh, compare the relative sizes of, you know, um, of these kinds of economic phenomenon. I think it's very hard to say that the capital gains tax preference did very much to, to secure recovery for the, for the country. It sure seems that way to me. And, you know, it, it looks so clear. I don't see how there can be argument that, that the real economic recovery comes from government investment, investing in the economy. If the government uh, were to invest in building roads and bridges and things like were done in the New Deal today, I think you'd have a lot more widespread economic recovery. And I think it's interesting, we mentioned a little bit the racial aspect of it and the, mm-hmm. the power of the Southern Democrats. I mean, Roosevelt was in a very difficult position. He needed their support for the New Deal, but they were all tremendous racists. I mean, let's face it, they were. Uh, and, and you point out that, uh, that New York Stock Exchange leaders warned against any new taxes with 
quote, social purposes rather than revenue as their main objective. And that in the late 60s, in the 60s, aside from their saying the right things about ending racial discrimination, quote, the Democratic Party's shifted thinking about tax policy more in terms of growth than in terms of fairness, end of quote. And it seems that has continued. The reality is a much smaller percentage of African-Americans benefit from lower capital gains taxes. But people like Jack Kemp and many others worked to maintain lower taxes for capital gains, insisting they release funds for investments that create jobs, and that benefits all. It sounds to me like more paying fealty to the notion of trickle-down. I wonder if you could just uh, comment on on, uh, Jack Kemp's belief. Sure. Um, Well, the first thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, again, the devils are really in the... uh, The devil, sorry, is really in the details. So, you know, it's... uh, Many Americans do receive um, investment income. Um, it's not the, rec- the receipt of capital gains or investment income is not necessarily a one percent thing. Um, but outside of the very rich people, um, most people receive their ta- capital gains income or their investment income in tax deferred accounts, retirement accounts, or um, through uh, their homes right, when they make a profit sure. on the sale of their homes. Right. But so much of that is tax-deferred. So in these tax-deferred, or tax-exempt, sorry. So the tax-deferred accounts and the uh, tax-exempt uh, uh, home gains um, give people, I think, a sense that this capital gains tax thing benefits for me, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. I also have received invested income. What they don't understand or what they don't think about is that, yes, you're receiving investment income, but it doesn't mean that you benefit from the capital gains preference, right? Um, the capital gains preference is overwhelmingly taken or enjoyed by, at this point in time, the one, you know, the 1%, the very, very richest households, right? 70-something percent of them receive all of the income hmm. that gets preferred treatment under the capital gains. So I think, huh. you know, the confusion um, or the kind of failure, you know, or, uh, to recognize this in the broader public conversation has to do with this confusion of, if I ever, you know, if I have an investment, then obviously this thing is good for me. Um, this preference is good for me. And that's not necessarily the case because of the details of our tax code. D- does that make sense? Yes. Um, so, um, so that was the first thing I wanted to say. Now, in terms of, you know, Kemp... Um, and the racial preference bit of it. Um, let's see, where to begin? Mm-hmm. So what we find, um, you know, kind of picking up from what I said before, um, is that early on um, in the 1930s, um, folks who have a great deal of concern about the expanding role of the federal government under the New Deal in right. the economy, right. um, through regulation, through taxation, um, through spending, mm-hmm. um, begin to find each other around this issue of the capital gains tax, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting um, and to me was kind of surprising. Um, you were actually asking about Southern segregationists, men like Hen- uh, uh, Harry Byrd, who yes. the stock exchange thought was their like, sort of biggest chance champion in Congress. He's chairman of the Senate Finance Committee um, for quite a long time. So, yes. you know, this is the, the tax code writing uh, uh, portion of Congress. So he's very important on this issue. Um, and 
The South, during the New Deal and all through the mid-century, is very much dependent on federal revenue and federal spending um, for its economic development. I mean, this is why we get the Sun Belt, right? Um, but at the same time, folks like Byrd um, don't want to see any of these kinds of federal interventions in the economy mm-hmm. um, destabilizing, you know, social relationships, mm-hmm. you know, racial relationships being Jim Crow here. Um, so for them... Making these alliances across the Mason-Dixon line on tax policy is like a very important way to kind of put a break and, you know, kind of put a check on this sort of, you know, New Deal liberal policy. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is, and, and, you know, they think about this as a way in which uh, the federal government, federal tax policy, can help support um, and encourage a propertied, um, a, a propertied uh, American citizenry. But for them, if you think about the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, if you think about, especially in the South, but really everywhere, if you think about who has investment income, Right. I mean, who's taking right. investment income? Who's investing right. in the stock market? Um, who's even owning and, and profiting from selling homes? It's going to be white Americans, right? Yes. I mean, there's going to be very few African Americans um, who own securities, um, you know, and there are actually not that many who own their home. Um, and and New Deal, you know, home policies that promote home um, ownership, as we know, mm. were were racially biased too, right? Mm. Um, so when they're thinking about when these folks are thinking about um, sustaining and encouraging a mass investment society as kind of a counterweight to this other kinds of economic interventions that are more pro labor that the New Deal is doing, it's very much conceived as a white sort of propertied middle and upper middle class. Uh-huh. Um, now, as time goes on, you get you know the '60s um, and the '70s, and you'll find that. Um, Southern Dem- powerful summit Democrats who've eased off on segregation. You know, they've signed, they've come around to civil rights legislation. They're not massive resistors anymore. Um, but they continue right. to be um, important leaders. Um, folks like um, uh, um, Russell Long, who was Huey Long's son, right. um, the kind of famous populist, you know, oh, yeah. assassinated governor of Louisiana. Um, it's very interesting. He kind of picks up this vision as being this vision of a mass investment society as being, you know, an enactment of his father's hopes and dreams. Um, and he becomes the great champion. He actually then goes on to become a governor of the New York Stock Exchange. Hmm. Um, so, you know, even as those guys, uh, as that kind of Southern Democrat, powerful Southern Democrats in Congress, um, you know, kind of move away from massive resistance against segregation, the idea of promoting and rewarding a propertied white middle class Uh um, is still an important policy position for for them. And it's, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, as a historian, that's unusual and interesting um, because we think of all of this kind of stuff as being a kind of post-Reagan revolution, Republican Party agenda. (laughs) Um, And it really wasn't um, in in its origins, or at least it wasn't exclusively. By the time somebody like Jack Kemp comes to the table, um, and and really the guy, he's forgotten because he died very young, um, William Steger is mm-hmm. even more important here, um, sort of an ally and compatriot, same generation as Kemp, kind of a young Turk in the late 70s in the Republican Party. Um, they're coming from districts 
Um, Kemp is in uh, upstate New York. Um, Seeger's in Wisconsin. They're coming from districts that are really beginning to get hit very hard by deindustrialization. Um, and they find this way of thinking, this sort of trickle down way of thinking, mm-hmm. um, to be, you know, something fresh and new um, uh, in, in, in the economic, you know, playbooks that are out there that they're willing to experiment with. Um, and I think, you know, they, they can ride this wave, um, you know, sort of to the front of the Republican Party. Um, <laughs> So, you know, Jack Kemp obviously becomes quite a name and runs for president and right. runs for pres- vice president. And, right. and certainly um, a lot of uh, William Steger's patrons anticipated that he would have had, you know, as bright of a future within the Republican Party had he not died early. Well, we've come to the end of our half hour, which is uh, oh what you goodness. had available. I know it was quick. What can you suggest for people who want to read more about the effects of, of the capital gains preference and uh, how it might affect, uh, you know, it, it's, it's much better PR than being blatantly Jim Crow. Let's face it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think as historians, you know, um, that, that it's that kind of, in, in sort of uh, the second half of the 20th century, how do preferences that have their, I'm sorry, policies that have their origins in Southern segregationist right. politicians, um, you know, how do they kind of get, for lack of a better word, like, quote, unquote, whitewashed, right? Yeah. So <laughs> we don't recognize, it's, you know, it's hard to see the way in which they're um, racially biased in yes. addition to, yes. you know, class bias. Hard to see. But they are. Thank you so much, Julia Ott, at the New School. The article is called How Tax Policy Created the 1%. Very informative. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. I'll be back in just a minute. is called Money for Nothing, (laughs) which we were just talking about. It's not really nothing, but capital gains is different from actual earned income. Are you there, Marjorie Cohn? I am indeed. Oh, great. Well, we've all heard the term war crimes. What does that phrase make you think of, dear listener? The Nazi Holocaust, perhaps the British slaughter of innocents in a stadium in India in the mid-20th century, ISIS burning people in cages, What is meant legally by the term war crimes? Certainly it's something abhorrent to the sensibility of pretty nearly all Americans. We would never have a government that engages in war crimes, right? Well, our guest today argues that 
in a very brief time, President Trump has already distinguished himself as a war criminal. Now, that's a pretty strong accusation. It must be merely oppositional hyperbole, right? Well, let's look into it. Our guest today is Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. Her website is MarjorieCohn.com and C-O-H-N, unlike mine, which is C-O-H-E-N. Her article, Donald Trump's War Crimes, first appeared on Truthout.org. And let's take a look at war criminal. It's a very strong accusation. Marjorie, how would you define the term? What legally constitutes a war crime? Well, according to the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court, war crimes include willful killing, willfully causing great suffering or serious injury, intentional attacks against civilians or civilian objects. That means their things, their houses, their mosques, hospitals, schools, etc., and intentionally launching unjustified attacks knowing they will kill or injure civilians. Yeah, that would be. And that's that's kind of hard to believe that that would be knowingly uh, happen. You know, he's only been in the White House since January 20th. When did his war crimes actually start? And maybe you can give us some details of war crimes that Trump has been responsible for. Well, they started inaugural weekend with two drone strikes in Yemen that killed 10 people. One drone struck three people riding on a motorcycle, and the other hit seven people riding in a car. But interestingly, neither Trump nor Defense Secretary James Mattis admits to having approved the strikes, and it's not clear who authorized them. Then one week after his inauguration... Trump was bemoaning the death of a U.S. Navy SEAL in a botched raid he personally ordered in southern Yemen, but Trump didn't mention the 30 people, including 10 women and children, killed by the U.S. bombers, and the attack badly damaged a health facility, a school, and a mosque. Um, In March alone, the um, U.S.-led coalition has killed an inordinate number of civilians, according to Air Wars, which is a non-governmental organization that monitors civilian casualties from airstrikes in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. almost 1,000 civilian deaths had already been alleged from coalition actions in Iraq and Syria in March. And in the last part of March alone, um, U.S. drones bombed a mosque in Aleppo, Syria, killing 47 civilians. Um, U.S. aircraft bombs bombed homes, a school, and a hospital in Tabqa, Syria, killing 20 civilians. A U.S.-led coalition airstrike on a school that was housing 50 families displaced by the fighting near Raqqa, Syria, killed at least 33 civilians. And a U.S. airstrike in Mosul, Iraq, killed more than 200 people. That was the largest loss of civilian life since the United States began bombing ISIS in Syria. Uh, and Iraq in 2014. And that attack was approved somewhere in the Middle East, according to U.S. defense officials, probably by a one-star general or a team working under him or her. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it, you know, it's hard to figure out, obviously, who is responsible. And, you know, where does the buck stop? Of course, uh, President Truman said the buck stopped there at the desk. But, I mean, let, let's take a look at this. Uh, we're in this fight, which doesn't recognize borders. Our enemies are bad guys. ISIS has performed 
incredible, inhuman, terrible things. Uh, but, you know, not just to us, actually, that ISIS, more Muslims suffer from their atrocities than we Westerners. We have to do something. It, it seems that they only understand really harsh violence. I wonder if you could comment on that. But the problem is that we are continuing to bomb and use drones. And in fact, uh, Trump sent 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles armed with over 1,000 pounds of explosives um, to bomb Syria as he was eating chocolate cake with President Xi of China. Um, And so all of these, these weapons and these drones and these civilian killings are not going to solve the problem. Um, And as long as we continue to arm the so-called rebels in Syria, provide arms, and continue to bomb ourselves, there will never be any peace. What we need to do is to enlist all of the people, all of the players, including Russia, China, Assad in Syria, and Mm -hmm. sit down and come up with a diplomatic solution. We need to immediately lift the ban on Syrian refugees. We need to provide the United Nations with its requested $5 billion to deal with the humanitarian crisis there. Hmm. And it's critical that the Trump administration work toward a political solution, an immediate Hmm. ceasefire with Russia, with Iran, instead of rattling the sabers. (laughs) Yeah, rattling the sabers. What that does is, well, it rattles the sabers and I think so far has provided pretty darn good recruiting for ISIS, for our enemies. I mean, they can just say, and, and that, that ban on, on Muslim immigrants played right into their hands and using tremendous violence uh, shows other Muslims that are now afraid of ISIS that, well, America, President Trump, they're uh, making war on Muslim altogether. It's, you know, we want to beat them, but I somehow think we're playing right into their hands. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. We're talking about uh, war crimes. Strong, strong word, but uh, it seems that uh, President Trump is doing it. Um, and, and Trump made a lot of noise about the unfortunate death of a Navy SEAL in Yemen. People don't hear a lot about Yemen on the news. Of, of course, Trump made no mention of any other deaths of people in Yemen, and the mainstream media says nothing about that. What What is really going on in Yemen, and, and what kind of war crimes may be being committed there? I mean, the heck, the Saudis are involved as well. They are involved, and the United States continues to arm the Saudis. And so we are contributing to... Uh, a ter- terrible situation. There's been a civil war going on in Yemen for many years, and the, you know the, the you know if you back away from all of this, Bert, we don't belong there. We do not belong in that area. This is there are civil wars going on in Syria, in Yemen, in other parts there, uh, other countries, um, and uh, of course we're in. Iraq and Afghanistan, because George W. Bush got us into two illegal wars there, and there are still people dying on both sides, many, many civilian casualties. And this is not the way to pursue a foreign policy. Um, it's it. Not only is it illegal, it's it's what. 
Bush is uh, what Bush is doing. That was a, a Freudian slip. Yeah. What Trump is doing in that area in the Middle East uh, violates U.S. law, violates international law. But it's also, as you said, very dangerous because of the blowback and. Um, in mid-March, 37 former government officials and national security experts from across the political spectrum sent a letter to Defense Secretary James Mattis, and they said even small numbers of unintentional civilian deaths or injuries can cause significant setbacks. And they, that's what they mean, that um, there is going to be blowback from these civilian casualties. When people see us killing their loved ones with drones, with other kinds of killing, uh, you know, armed bombers, etc., Navy SEALs, targeted killings, it makes them hate us even more, it makes them want to do us harm. Um, and, uh, and this is not the, 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 uh, the way to achieve peace. This is not a proper foreign policy. Um, and Trump, it, another thing that's very, very alarming is that Trump has not ruled out the use of nuclear weapons yeah. in this so-called war on terror. He was interviewed on MSNBC, and he said, and this is the president speaking, quote, somebody hits us within ISIS, you wouldn't fight back with a nuke, question mark? I mean, unquote, that is the president saying, hey, we've got nukes, why can't we use them? And another troubling assertion that Trump made during the campaign is is by saying, when you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. He's talking about targeting civilians, um, highly illegal under the Geneva Conventions, um, and these constitute war crimes. Well, so um, his his uh, coalition airstrikes, the U.S. led coalition airstrikes, violate um, U.S. law, violate international law. The U.N. Charter says you can only um, attack another country in self defense, or when the Security Council has approved, we're not acting in self defense. Nobody has attacked us, and the same with the Syrian bomb, the Tomahawk missiles he mm-hmm. sent, also mm-hmm. illegal under the U.N. Charter. And when Trump uses drones and other means of targeted killings or political assassinations, those also violate the Geneva Conventions. Um, There are two uh, very well-established principles of international humanitarian law that must be followed, proportionality and distinction. Ah. Proportionality means that an attack cannot be excessive in relation to the anticipated military advantage sought. And when uh, the Trump administration is using drones to take out convoys and killing large numbers of civilians compared with the number of so-called militants it's targeting, that violates the principle of proportionality. And then the other principle that we are compelled to comply with is called distinction. And distinction requires that the attack be directed only at a legitimate military target. And yet the U.S.-led coalition has been targeting sites with no clear military purpose. That includes hospitals, schools, mosques, passenger ferries, and we have no reason to believe that the Trump administration is not continuing the Obama policy of signature strikes, where you're not even targeting specific individuals. You're targeting areas of suspicious activity, any men uh, of military age in an area of suspicious activity, whatever that means, um, is fair game for a signature strike. So there's no way to avoid um, civilian casualties, for the most part, 
um, when you're launching these signature strikes. And I wonder if if the 59 uh, Tomahawk missiles in Syria were a signature strike, just saying, hey, we're here. I'm signing my name. This is showing we're here. And I have to ask, you know, there's it's illegal. This, that, the other thing, they're all illegal. But what what are laws if they're not enforced? Aren't they pretty much not real laws if they're not enforced? There's international humanitarian law, the Geneva Conventions. There's the International uh, Criminal Court at The Hague. Are they powerless? Are they? I mean, the president just seems to be completely ignoring it. I mean, so what if it's illegal? Well, we can't. I mean, just because the administration is not following the law doesn't mean that we just roll over and say, oh, that's too bad. I mean, that's why we have lawsuits. A woman um, is suing the Bush administration, individuals in the Bush administration, an Iraqi woman um, f- from the uh, from the illegal Iraq war. And yes, the International Criminal Court um, is is available. The problem is that so far the court has only gone after African leaders. Um, they are considering a petition from the Palestinians about um, war crimes committed by Israel in uh, in Gaza, right. and they would also, if they if the court took up that case, um, look at uh, war, war crimes or other legal violations committed by Palestinians as well. But they, it's not clear whether they're going to take uh, take up that lawsuit. Um, but in addition to the International Criminal Court. So, I mean, there are many countries that are not parties to the International Criminal Court, and that there are still ways to get jurisdiction. It's not as easy. But there's also a very well-established doctrine called universal jurisdiction. And universal jurisdiction basically says any country can prosecute foreign nationals for the most atrocious of crimes, genocide, war crimes, crimes Uh against humanity, Uh the crime of aggression, um, because those crimes are so atrocious their crimes against all of humanity. And, for example, Israel used universal jurisdiction to prosecute, try and convict Adolf Eichmann uh, and execute him for his crimes during the Holocaust, the so-called architect of the Holocaust, even though um, they had no direct correlation with Israel. The United States has used universal jurisdiction to prosecute, try and convict and sentence Chucky Taylor of Liberia to 97 years in federal prison for torture committed in Liberia that had no direct connection with the United States. So other countries could bring charges against U.S. leaders for the commission of these war crimes. Now, will they? Well, it's not likely at this point because Mm. the United States um, wields a very big stick and punishes trees for their votes with withholding aid um, and uh, threatening them in other ways. Um, that doesn't mean that it it won't happen in the future. I think at this point, it's up to us, it's up to civil society to demand that our government not act illegally in our name. And we see protests almost every week, thousands of people in the streets protesting the Trump policies. And this should be, we should have another march against the bombing, against civilian casualties. I mean, we've had all of these marches, and they certainly have gotten the attention, not just of our government, but of governments around the world, of people around the world who see that the people in the United States um, do not support the illegal, barbarous activities of Donald Trump. And we do have some power. And as you were speaking, I was reminded that uh, Judge uh, Gerzon, I think it was, in Spain, uh, took uh, uh, former President Pinochet of Chile to court uh, for 
war crimes he committed. Did uh, Spain have a direct say in it? No, but they were crimes against humanity. Uh, Many people, including myself, believe Henry Kissinger is clearly a war criminal for actions he directed in Cambodia, Chile, and elsewhere. I hope he's not allowed to die before he faces prosecution for war crimes, but it looks like you know, he's 91 or 92. Who can, people can be prosecuted for war crimes. How realistic is it to hope that uh, someone, Trump or his underlings, might someday be prosecuted? What power do we the people have? I know you, you talked about that a little bit, but I wonder if you could go on about that. Well, it's not clear that Trump will actually serve four years, given his serial lawbreaking and conflicts of interest, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, it's not clear that he won't be impeached, although, of course, impeachment has to come yeah. from uh, the House of Representatives, which is controlled by the Republicans. Yes, and so far, they are um, getting a lot of what they want from Trump, and so they're not going to buck him. But right. uh, at some point, that may change. Right. And that's, um, I think, because it, he's unpredictable. And I think that's where the power of the people comes in is that when the Republican members of Congress see that uh, their electoral future is uh, at risk from sticking with Trump, then we'll start to see a change. And that's where people power comes in. Uh, and, and some of the you know, other uh, things about this, about the, the, the status of war crimes, the actuality of it is, I mean, Trump has suggested rolling back protections for civilians regarding collateral damage. And there's been white phosphorus, depleted uranium, uh, it just it seems to go on and on and on. And then there's, you know, the U.S. is heavily involved in, quote, liberating Mosul in Iraq from ISIS. What's the reality there? Could, be, could it be really true that the coalition, our side, is killing more people, liberating ISIS, uh, that, that city, than ISIS is doing? I mean, what's the reality there as well? Well, yes. I mean, as a matter of fact, um, the U.S. airstrike in Mosul in late March killed more than 200 people, and that's the largest loss of civilian life since the U.S. began bombing ISIS in Syria in 2014. Um, and, and you did mention white phosphorus and depleted uranium. Yes, yes, um, there, the uh, uh, bombing of Syria by Trump um, with his 59 Tomahawk missiles was in retaliation against the chemical attack uh, use of chemical weapons in Kanchakun, which killed over 80 people, at least um, 20 women and 30 children. Um, and he assumed, Trump assumed, that uh, Bashar Assad had uh, had carried out that chemical attack, uh, even though um, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which is the implementing body for the Chemical Weapons Convention, um, was, uh, they had an investigation that was ongoing. It is not at all clear who mounted that attack. Um, but the United States is using chemical weapons as well. Um, the coalition forces are using white phosphorus gas. That's a chemical weapon. It burns to the bone. It's been documented. Its use has been documented in Mosul, Iraq. And the U.S. Central Command has confirmed that it used depleted uranium, which is arguably a war crime against ISIS in Syria. Depleted uranium um, is uranium. It's radioactive. It's put on the tips of bombs so that they can penetrate metal, and it stays in the environment uh, for millions of years, uh, poisoning the environment. So here's the United States um, 
sending 50 Tomahawk missiles to Syria, um, killing uh, who knows how many people, and, uh, and being hailed as a hero by the corporate media, much of Congress, the neoconservatives, mm. Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, cheerleading yes. this, this attack um, in, re- in retaliation against chemical weapons that it's not even clear were were used by Assad. And even if they were, this is not uh, the way to to deal with the situation. Two wrongs do not make a right. Whoever was responsible for that war crime, that chemical weapons attack in Syria, should be brought to justice. But without without, um, uh, following the U.N. charter... Trump goes in and, and, you know, acts like a uh, bomber-in-chief and gets a lot of praise for it. Um, Think about what that means for the future possibility of him uh, attacking North Korea using nuclear weapons. I mean, Uh, he could uh, could get us all killed at this rate. No, this is true. And I still am of the belief that, I mean... I, I believe in, in justice. You know, it's a little hard sometimes, but it involves prosecution, crimes, not, you know, they, you, you hit me, I hit you back. That's not the way it works. It's not about revenge. It's about justice. It's about prosecuting for crimes. It can be done. And I just want to ask real briefly, you know, Obama uh, often used drones in making attacks. Uh, how big of a difference is there between Obama and Trump in terms of war crimes being committed? Well, um, not a lot until he he sent the Tomahawk missiles uh, to Syria. That uh-huh. went beyond what Obama did. But I wrote a lot of crit- critique of Obama sure. during his administration for the civilians he was killing with drones and other um, targeted killings. Um, and uh, but I fear that Trump is going to take the this uh, illegal bombing to to a whole new level that we've never seen before. And certainly, you know, we saw um, two illegal wars started and prosecuted by George W. Yes. Bush, killing hundreds of thousands of people yes. um, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Those wars continue. We continue to lose people. Americans and Afghans and Iraqis continue to die. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at my website, MarjorieCohn.com, I wrote a lot about the yes. war crimes committed by the Bush administration and the Obama administration as well. Um, I've only written two so far uh, about the Trump administration, but of course he's only been in office shortly, uh, a little over 100 days. Oh, terrific. Well, we are not powerless. We can do something about that. Raising our voices absolutely does matter. There is a system of justice that can be involved. People can check out your website, MarjorieCohn.com, M-A-R-J-O-R-I-E-C-O-H-N.com. Thank you so much, uh, We'll, I'm sure we'll talk to you in the future. There's, there's a lot more going on. I'm afraid so. Thanks, Bert. Thank you. Second fiddle, kill!